The reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Moses, Set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it, and shield the ark with a curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of, tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar, and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtains and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burnt fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance of to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. 
And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. We're now at the conclusion of this. And we don't get any new ideas anymore. Lots of themes repeating themselves. But they're coming together, these themes, and drawing to a great conclusion. They serve to point forward to the future of Israel. And also they point forward to our future as well. In Exodus 26, which we looked at a few weeks ago, we had the instructions for building the tabernacle. And now here we have the actual building of the tabernacle. Moses must set up the tent and then God can enter. So he follows faithfully God's instructions just as the Lord had commanded him, it says. He hung up the curtain as the Lord had commanded him. He put the bread on the table as the Lord had commanded him. He set up the altar of burnt offerings as the Lord had commanded him. He's being faithful to the instructions and he's being faithful, most importantly, to God. And so the tent is built and Aaron and his sons are set apart, consecrated in a special role as priests. There would be no more Moses going up the mountain anymore to communion with God. Now the priests would take on this role as the intermediary between God and the people. And the most striking image, I think, in the whole chapter, the the flourish to the end of the book of Exodus, is in verse 34. It says, The thick cloud covered the tent, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You are supposed to notice that as, ta-da, at the end of the book of Exodus. It's happened. This thick cloud coming back to Israel, descending and filling the tabernacle is the focus of our talk this morning. What does it mean for Moses? And what does it mean for you and me? The first thing I want to point to is the fact that it means that God is near. It represents the fact that God has chosen to be close to Israel. He wants to be in their presence, at the centre of the campsite. Earlier in Exodus, the cloud uh, representing God's presence was up the mountain, but now it's down on the ground. And this is because God is now in the sanctuary in fact, the cloud has come and gone a few times in the book of Exodus, or um, travelled with the Israelites out of the Exodus, um, uh, sorry, out of Egypt when they came to Mount Sinai, and now um, it 
it, it, uh, they are about to head off to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, and the cloud has reappeared again. So it has appeared and disappeared several times at the leave, leaving of Egypt when they go to the mountain and a few other times. But, but now it's reappeared. God dwells amongst Israel intensely and at close range. That's what we're to see here. He takes up space in Israel's physical world. And at the same time, we are to remember that he also fills the cosmos. We're not to think God is just there and he's nowhere else. He does both. God can't be confined. He's near and he's far. But there's no other specific place in the whole universe where it can be said that God is intensely present at that moment. In a way, we can think of the tabernacle as a kind of a tent body for God in that moment. So why is this significant to God that that to Israel that God is near? It reminds the Israelites that they are God's special people. See, if a person thinks another person is special, what we tend to do is to hang around them, don't we? I remember when Joe and I were first uh, flirting at the Theo's coffee shop in January 1998 in Queenscliff. I wanted to be near Joe, so I arranged that we'd be on the prayer roster at the same time in the prayer room. I know, it's tragic, isn't it? And then I also volunteered to drive her home to Melbourne. This made Joe wonder about me. Why is he hanging around me all all the time? Does Peter like me? He's showing a lot of interest. I could tell Joe was pleased to have me as her prayer partner, I think, for that 30-minute slot and for me to be her chauffeur. And so in the same way, the fact that God wants to be physically close to Israel, Israel to go, he must really like us. It says, you are special to me. I care about you. I love you. I'm here for you. And when, let's think about this, when the Son of Man comes and dwelt among us or tabernacled amongst us, as I reminded us a few weeks ago, that that's the same word. As it says in John chapter 1, when the Son of Man, who God was pleased to have all the fullness of, dwell in all his fullness, dwell in him, as Paul writes in Colossians 1.19, when he came to earth, what message is God sending to his people? He's saying, I want to be close to you. I love you so much. I am for you so much that I'm going to come to you. And if you have said yes to Jesus, then you too are filled with God's Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ. God is saying to you, I am here for you. I care about you and I love you so much. I'm going to lead you through your life. I know you intimately. Healing, considering what they did with the golden calf, as we looked at last week, worshipping idols. They'd turn their back on the covenant agreement, um, ignored God's instructions, Um, being unfaithful to God, and yet God chooses to be close to them anyway. There is nothing more affirming than a person who says to you, I know you warts and all, and despite everything, I still love you. Well, that is the God that we worship, the God of grace.
Secondly, the presence of the cloud highlights God's holiness. As God's presence is becoming more focused, more intense, more heightened in one location, his holiness radiates so powerfully like a hot furnace so that not even Moses can go in. He can't stand too close. Look at verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Approaching God in his tabernacle is done on God's terms because he is holy. Moses already had a sense of God's intense holiness, a strong sense, he in fact first-hand experience, when he had been standing in God's presence at other times. In Exodus 33 verse 20, God said to him, no one may see me and live. And he allowed Moses only a fleeting glimpse of his glory. You might have heard some Pentecostal churches around the world, they talk about this thing called a glory cloud. They talk about um, this concept like a, a gold dust appearing in the church building as a kind of a cloud. But I want to say we should be pretty suspicious of all of this. Uh, why? Because when these churches make this, say that this is happening, they're singing and they've got joy on their face and they're doing this and, and they're shouting with joy and, and they, then at the end of the service they just go home and say, wasn't that an amazing church service? That was great. But what we see in the Bible when God fills the tabernacle with his cloud, when he's intensely present, is completely, his holiness is so overwhelming that human beings, even great prophets like Moses, can't even go in when the prophet experiences the glory of the Lord like the appearance, prophet Ezekiel experiences the glory of the Lord like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, an appearance which he said was of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, his response is to fall down. That's Ezekiel 1.28. He falls down on the ground and he can't look, you know, he can't put his face near the, near the glory. When Isaiah had a vision of, of God's, glory his response was to cry out woe to me i am ruined for i am a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty isaiah 6 verse 5 when you come into god's holy presence like it when it's when god is so focused and intense wow you might be a person who really wants to experience a super intense Holy Spirit moment in your life. And that is a good thing to have if you have it. I hope you do, because if you do, what will happen to you is it will give you a right perspective on who you are and who God is. You will realise how much you are not worthy of God's love and how profound his grace is. And it will change your life forever if it ever happens. It's not something we all have to have happen in our lives. But if it happens, even in one-tenth of what happened in the tabernacle on that day, your life will be changed forever. I think it's by God's grace that he chooses most of the time to be close to us, but to be not so intense as we are knocked over on the floor constantly. And yet he's still present. And that's why it's so good, isn't it, to be a Christian. God is holy. Thirdly, the cloud shows us that God was preparing Israel for their future. 
God's near and holy presence prepared them for their life in the promised land. It prepared them for the arrival of their future Messiah, the Son of God. And it prepared them even more so for eternity. We've established that Moses could not go into the tabernacle because God's holiness was so intense. But God promises to us that there will be a day when his glory will fill the whole earth. Just as the waters cover the sea, it says in Habakkuk 2 verse 14. Can you imagine um, at the globe and all the oceans and that, that being God's intense holy presence over the whole earth? Wow. This would be even greater than the glory that filled the little tabernacle. And the Bible says this is why on that day when God's glory fills the whole earth, we are not going to even be able to stand, stand there in the presence of God unless we too have bodies of glory. With bodies of glory, then we can stand in God's glorious presence. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the body you have now is sown in dishonour. But when you are raised on the last day, it will be raised in glory. He says, the body you have now is sown in weakness with all of your suffering and your sickness and your sin. But Paul says, on that day when God's glory fills the whole earth, like the oceans of the sea, you will have a spiritual body. You'll be raised in power, he says. On that day when God's glory fills the whole earth, you will see his face. My favorite, one of my favorite bits of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 4 and 5 says, There will be no more night. You will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give you light. His glory is the light. And you will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, verse 4 to 5. So if you want to know what heaven is like, well, it's a bit like, in a little bit, like the worship we have now, actually, in the church community. So we have the choir singing today. It lifts up your soul, doesn't it? It lifts up your soul. And as you sing along too, and as we pray and as we hear the scriptures and even hear about our community life, and this is a taste of heaven. In the book of Revelation, heaven includes a tabernacle. It actually looks like a temple, And this is all symbolic. It's not saying that heaven actually physically looks like a Near Eastern tent. It's not saying that. The point is that heaven is a place designed for our worship, for for worshipping God. But whereas God's presence was once severely limited in the time of the tabernacle when you needed the priests and, and all the processes that God put in place, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will enjoy God's presence in all its fullness forever. So if this is true, the right response is to join all of heaven in worshipping God. 
The thick cloud of Exodus 40 points us to look towards heaven. It gives us a heavenly perspective. And this posture causes us to wrestle and it causes us to triumph over our present sufferings and temptations. So when we worship God now, we are as close to our heavenly future as we will ever be in this life. The Holy Spirit does this amazing thing of bringing uh, our future and the kingdom into the present. He gives us a taste of what will be. And when we face the hardships of life, the Spirit, he, he guarantees our future inheritance, the greater glory resulting from our present testings, as it says in Roman, Romans 8. The God of the Exodus, the God who led his people out of Egypt with fire and cloud, is still at work. He is near to us. He is holy. He is giving us a taste of the future. And for the Israelites in the book of Exodus, the first stage of their mission had been completed and God's plan for them was moving full steam ahead. The first phase of their story had come to an end and from now on there would be a relentless push forward to the promised land, to Canaan, to the land of milk and honey. And the closing verses of chapter 40 shows us how it works. When God moves, the cloud moves, the people move too. When he, when he remains in one spot, the people remain in one spot. They will only get to the promised land on God's guidance, on his direction, in his timing. God is in charge of their journey. And this has always been the case. It was God who made the promise to Abram, Abraham, God who challenged Pharaoh, God who brought Israel to the mountain, God who gave the law. They are free from being slaves to Egypt, but they're not free to do whatever they want. God has not saved them to be self-determining hedonists. God has set them apart to be his people and to serve him. And when they do that, then they know true freedom. So to conclude this um, talk, but also this series, we are to see that nothing can stop God. Throughout their journey, um, for the, for, for, until Jesus returns, gee, the psalmists, think about it, and the prophets will continually look back to this story of the Exodus. They'll remind the Israelites over and over again what God did for them, bringing them out of Egypt. They'll always be challenged to remember that nothing can stop God's plan. The power of Egypt's army can't stop it. Israel's stubbornness can't stop it. God's own anger can't even stop it. And this is the main point of the story of Exodus. Nothing can get in the way of God achieving his goals. And we are in the same situation as the Israelites. We have been delivered and are waiting to arrive at our destination to be with Jesus in eternity. Just as the Israelites were ready to go to their country of rest, of milk and honey in the promised land, we too are ready to reach our rest. We follow Jesus as he guides us along the way through our life. It's true, there's no cloud overhead anymore to look at, but we've got something even better. 
we have a thick cloud, that same thick cloud within us. God has filled us by his Holy Spirit who will lead us to our destination in the same way that the cloud brought the Israelites to their destination. And we should be comforted by this. The God of Exodus is still guiding us forward. He's present wherever we go. He's not taking us to Canaan. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, God is taking us to a better country. So the end of Exodus is the beginning of a new set of stories. There are new stories of the Israelites to come and there are new stories for the new Israel, the Christians. We who have been saved by Jesus Christ are ready for the journey towards our final goal. We are ready to go onward and upward. C.S. Lewis captures this same idea at the end of the Narnia series on the final page of The Last Battle, and you can see it on the front of the booklet. I'll read it out and we'll finish. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are close, you are near, and that you are giving us a taste of eternity, a taste of our future, and leading us through our lives. We thank you for Moses and for his faithful response, his faithfulness to follow your instructions, and that you used him, and that you showed your love and grace to the Israelites despite their unfaithfulness to you. We thank you so much for your grace that you have shown to us. We thank you that when we gather together, um, the thick cloud is already present in our hearts and we can have a taste of heaven as we worship you. And we long to be with you on that day when your glory fills the whole earth and we will stand in your presence in our resurrection bodies. Amen. We're going to pray now.